I'm glad you're here as we continue in our series through the book of James. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn to the book of James. It's uh, almost all the way near the end. Is that a little better than saying two-thirds of the way through? Yeah? Okay, thanks, Pastor Will. I like that little shout-out. Um, it's about seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. No, um, it'll be all the way near the back. If you hit Revelation, back up a little bit, and you'll find it there. But um, as you're turning there, about two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to get away. And I went away to a silent retreat with a bunch of Jesuit priests. If you don't know what a silent retreat is, it pretty much is exactly what you're thinking, right? It's exactly what you're thinking. It's, uh, for me, it was three days of no talking, no technology whatsoever. You basically turn everything that you dream come true. I see my wife's hand in the back. Yes, I see some of you are like, more of you are like, oh my gosh, three days of silence, sign me up. Now, how many of you are, are a little more uh, thinking, that sounds like a living nightmare? Anybody? Ah, I see those hands. Yes, some of you are like, uh, yeah. And others of you are like, no, I don't want either. I don't know. I'd panic and freak out. Listen, here's what I know is I understand where both of those groups are uh, because back in May, of 2018, I was blessed with a sabbatical here at Crossbridge, and I booked a retreat at this same Jesuit center back then, having no idea it was a silent retreat. I had no idea. I was in panic mode when I arrived, and when I found out, I, I, I kid you not, I thought, this is my nightmare. This, this is my nightmare. I almost thought about just signing my name as present and then walking out the back door and thinking, I'll just drive back home. I did stay. And I guess because we are a transparent church, I'll tell you, I struggled. I struggled a lot. I, I have so much trouble slowing down my thoughts. I have a lot of trouble um, not saying anything when someone says something. Uh, I, I, I mean, how do you tell a preacher not to talk? Right? It doesn't work. Silence, honestly, was something that I have avoided for a long time in my life for many reasons, but most of them are rooted in uh, deep fear and a massive amount of insecurity. But I knew, I knew that I needed to learn more about this spiritual discipline of silence. So I stayed, I stayed. You know, two weeks ago, I'm not sure what the difference was, but I had every reason not to go. It was, it was pouring outside when I was supposed to leave on Friday and it was freezing. So it's freezing rain and I got to drive to North Jersey and I thought, I, I don't have to go. My kids had a packed schedule, which meant my wife, who was doing opening shifts at her job at 5.30 a.m., was going to be playing taxi for them, and I knew she was going to be taking a, a huge weight by me leaving. But instead of making excuses to try to sign and get out, I found myself actually longing to get up there. When the director called us into this time of silence... And, and it was this moment, I, I don't know any other way to explain it, than I felt like I could exhale a breath that I've been holding in for two years. I, I don't know any other way to explain it. I, I remember the moment in my mind, in my emotions, in my spirit, in my soul, when everything 
became still Friday night. And I smiled and I thought to myself, well, this is completely different than four years ago. This is, this is entirely different. And, and I began to wonder, when the heck did this happen? When did I become someone who desired and needed silence and solitude? But what's wild is I think these moments hit all of us more often than we recognize. You know, when you're in a similar situation, maybe it's months later, years later, we, it doesn't matter, but you're in a similar situation and you respond differently to that situation than you did in the past for better or for worse. Has anybody else been in that moment where you're like, oh, I've been here? Something's changed. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. And I sat there in this library the next morning and I wondered, when did this happen? How did I go from someone who was terrified and insecure about silence to someone who was longing for it and looking to lock the door to my room to stay even longer? And this is when I realized something even a little more personal for me that I continue to share with you guys is I think it's in times of trouble. It's in times of trouble when we find out how our faith has matured, for better or for worse. We find out how many steps we've taken towards Jesus, because we say that's what we want everybody to do, right? Take steps towards Jesus, steps towards Jesus. How do you know if you're doing that? Usually it's in the midst of some crisis, some trouble, or some reaction that you've been in before, and now you respond differently, and you go, huh, that was more like Jesus. Or, huh, that was not like Jesus. And we find ourselves with each step we take either being transformed into the image of Christ or conformed to the image of the world. And this idea continued to flood my mind last week as Pastor Will was talking about James chapter 1. I mean, I was so challenged last week by that message, and, and, I, and I wondered what it was about James 1, 2 to 4 that was like, Lord, why is this sitting so heavy on my heart? And if you weren't with us last week, let me just give you a quick recap on what those verses were, because they set up the entire rest of this book. Pastor Will kind of read it for us, but I'll read it again in James chapter 1. It says this, starting in verse 2. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. As Pastor Will unpacked this last week, I thought, this is, oh, that sounds great. And he kind of said something that I was like, mm. he goes, yeah, that's so great. It's so much easier said than done. <laughs> Finding joy in times of trouble. And, and the reason I want to look at that for a second isn't because he didn't unpack it well last week, but because it continues to set up the rest of this book, especially the portion that we're going to look at today. And James is very clear. He doesn't say, if troubles come your way, consider joy, does he? The word that he uses there is when. When troubles come your way. I'm sorry, if you're human, you will have troubles. Amen. We've experienced this. We know this. And, and troubles have this way of shaping us, don't they? They have this way of revealing a lot about us and what's going on in our souls. I think because it's harder to pretend we have it all together in those times because so much energy is going to surviving, we can't put up the front as much. We just don't have the energy. 
And James says that it's in these troubles that there's this opportunity for joy. And this joy is an opportunity because it gives our faith a chance to grow. Now, in verse 4, there was two sets of words. And the sets of words that were used were when, you know, it's fully developed or when it's perfect and complete. If you have your Bibles, underline those, circle those. These two phrases are actually the same exact word in the Greek. They're the same exact word. And, and we're going to learn a little Greek today. You ready for this? You're going to walk out a little smarter, okay? The Greek word here is teleos. Go ahead and say it with me, teleos. Tilios. If you have your soap guides, you'll be familiar with this because this definition of that word is in there. Tilios simply means something that lacks nothing. Having come to a complete maturity in its particular area. What's funny is this word tilios is the same exact word that Jesus uses in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, when he says he wants us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. He's saying, I want you, and James is saying the same thing. Their desire for us is the same, that our lives, our faith would become mature, that it would become whole. This is something that we all want and that we all hope for, both for ourselves and for those around us. And we, we recognize that things mature. This is a natural part of life. We see this, don't we? We expect people to grow. Now, when someone begins to act a little less than their age, we usually tell them, would you just grow up? Right? We have an expectation that people are maturing. Most of us don't meet that expectation. But we have it. But I think for most of us, it's in these troubled times. It's in these trials that we have that we learn our deepest lessons, that we understand life and maturity on a different level. And I think the same exact thing is true in our spiritual lives. Finding joy in times of trouble will be a sign of our spiritual maturity or immaturity. It will reveal what's happening to us. And the rest of this letter now jumps in to all of these very specific situations that we'll find troubles in. And so this book is not fluid. It doesn't just flow. It actually jumps in chunks. So that's what we're going to do is for the next couple of weeks, jump through in chunks to look at it. So we're going to look at times of trouble. You ready to get into some trouble with me? Okay, this is Crossbridge, right? Let's see where James starts near the end of your Bible in James, chapter 2. Verse 1, it says this. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? All right, let's just pause. <laughs> um, I, I told you, James, James is very direct. So if you're someone who doesn't like confrontation and direct, James is a little tough. He is just straight, and he, asks by, he starts by asking this crazy, hard question. How can you claim to have faith in Jesus if you favor some people over others? Now, we know, based on what Pastor Will was talking about last week, he is talking specifically to followers of Jesus at this moment. And so if you're here and you have entered into a relationship with Jesus, that you have placed your trust and your hope in him, his death and his resurrection, this is for you and for me. If you're here and you're exploring your faith, you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and, and you're just kind of asking lots of questions, you're off the hook, okay? 
show all the favoritism you want. I don't think it's going to benefit you, but I think what James and what Jesus have to say are, are hugely important, so you might want to lean into this a little bit. But for those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, James is making it as clear as day. You can't claim to have faith in Jesus and show favoritism. You can't claim to have faith in Jesus and show favoritism. The two just are not compatible. And so that we're on the same page, favoritism simply, when I say that, I mean the practice of giving unfair, preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. Okay, it's preferential treatment to one group at the expense of another. It's elevating some people while devaluing others. And it's all based on what we, either personally or corporately, any group, prefers to think is important. Favoritism isn't always expressed exactly the same for everybody, so it comes in all different shapes. It comes in all different sizes and colors, and this is different than liking or not liking someone. Okay, there's a difference. You, you don't have to like everybody. That's just not reality. But favoritism is showing treatment, at preferential treatment at someone else's expense. And no matter which way favoritism shows up, James is very direct. If we claim to follow Jesus, there is absolutely no room for favoritism. Does that make sense? Amen. It's the way it is. And I think that's because favoritism is the opposite of love. Favoritism, is, it's the opposite of love. So if we claim to have faith in Jesus, people should experience love from us, not favoritism from us. Maybe the simpler way for me to say that is faith is proved by love. Your faith and my faith, it's proved by love. And so what James does after he lays this straight dart right at you, is he's, let me give you an example, is what he's going to do here. And so just in case that wasn't clear, he says this starting in verse 2. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting, and here he's talking about their version of church, okay? Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you, you stand over there, or you, you, you just sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? I, I love how James uses an example of favoritism that we still use today. We still show favorites in this world today. And he's not getting political by any means or critiquing how Rome, the governing authorities, should run their budget and care for poor and rich. Not at all. He's talking to people who have faith in Jesus. So he's talking to those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus. And, and I mean, just to bring it to today. It's as simple as, um, let's just say at Crossbridge, imagine as we were starting service today, two families walk in as guests to our church at like 9.50 because guests come early. The rest of you, you're always late. Get here on time. It's not amen. Um, amen. Please. Rolling in midway through worship. It's all about you, but uh, when I get here, um, listen. <laughs> suppose we have two guests come 
and the first family shows up in a newer car. They get out, they walk in, and they walk in with, they look good, their hairs are cut great, their clothes have those brand names, they're tucked, they're pressed. And when our greeters meet them, they greet them with smiles and genuineness and and, and then they begin to ask them where they're from, and you could tell just by the way that they've rolled up that, that they're from more of the richer area of the 08085. And they feel good, and they walk in head high, and, and we make sure their kids get checked in right and walk them down the hall, and this second family who's walked in maybe looks a little bit more disheveled and, and, and you're thinking, I think I donated those clothes to King Things or, or Goodwill a couple months ago. Like, is that mine? And, and they roll up and, and that other family begins to come in. And, and as that family who looks like they have it together and is, seems like they're from the wealthy part, as they roll in, we make sure, hey, listen, we know what it's like to sit in Crossbridge. So we want a spot in the middle for you because a spot in the middle means you've got, you could see it all, right? Don't go to the sides. You get the pole, right? I mean, here I'm playing with you guys. Like, you know, can you, can I see you back there? It's, it's hard, right? Don't, don't go there. Stay in the middle, all the screens, all the stuff. And as our other family comes in, it's like, listen, church people don't like when you sit in their seats. So you're not allowed to sit somewhere here. That, that's where these people sit. You need to sit behind the pole. Now, I, I say that jokingly because it's like, oh, well, those people from the 08085 that are wealthy and those people from the 08085 that it's like that unspoken part of it. Listen, James doesn't say it, but I will tell you the truth. Rich or poor, both have troubles. Both have troubles. Both are looking for help and for hope. And as someone who meets with both, I got to tell you, the troubles and trials, they're not so different. They're actually almost identical. But the truth is, I, I know at Crossbridge, and I told our greeters, I'm not critiquing you. You're amazing. I love you guys. I don't think this happens at Crossbridge, and I'm grateful for that. I really am. But you could see how it could happen, right? Come on. If someone who looks wealthy, acts wealthy, appears wealthy, comes in, you put them in the good spot. Why? Because they'll likely give more. And if they give more, we have more. And if we have more, that clearly shows the value of our heart. And this type of favoritism would be grounded in someone's view of money. They would elevate some over others. And so at the end of Verse four, James just clearly says, doesn't this discrimination, is the word he used, show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So James takes favoritism, he adds uh, a little pinch of discrimination, and here's what's crazy about this word um, discrimination up here, is this word is actually the same exact word that Pastor Will talked about last week, except he never ever used the word discrimination the word that he used was divided. Do you remember last week when he began to talk about what it means to ask God for wisdom, but we have a divided faith, a faith that says, sure, I'm gonna say I believe that God hears me and God can give me wisdom, but in reality, through all my troubles, I'm just gonna go seek my friends. I'm gonna go you know, see what the world has to offer me instead of going to God. So with lip service, we say, yeah, we're in for God, but really we do something completely different. You remember that word divided that he unpacked? Amazing, amazing. It's actually the same exact 
Greek word that James is using. And he's saying, listen, if your heart's divided and you're not seeking out God by prayer, by study, by seeking out godly counsel, you're split. You're showing a preference to one instead of the other. Discrimination is the same exact thing. You can profess with your mouth whatever you want if you follow Jesus. You can say you follow him till you're blue in the face. But the way that you love others around you will show the real maturity of your faith. You can say whatever you want. You can worship as big as you want. But if you don't show love, your faith is not mature. There's no other way to look at this. And if you're like, dang, why are you being so rough? It's just what James says. It's just what Jesus demonstrated. So how do we show love to each other? By accepting each other for what we are and seeing each individual around us as someone for whom Christ has died. That's who the people around you are. Someone that Christ has died for. It is not our job to judge or to condemn. There is only one judge. And shocker, it's not you or me. It's not. We're called to simply live out what the scriptures tell us to do. This is our guide. And what's great is as Pastor Will pointed it out last week, I'm pointing it out again this week, James actually says the same exact thing to this crew. If you jump down to verse eight with me, he says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you have heard that verse before? Love your neighbors as yourself, right? This is it. When James mentions here, he says, it's good when you obey the royal law. He's actually referring to two laws in the Old Testament. Um, one of them we'll talk about next week in Deuteronomy chapter 6, but the, the one that he references here with love your neighbor as yourself is actually pulled from Leviticus chapter 19. And you don't have to turn there, but here's what the royal law, one of the two biggies for the Jewish nation was. In Leviticus 19, it says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you would love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple, right? Don't miss that this command is found in the context and in the chapter right before God addresses how to be treating foreigners in their land. While always keeping in mind that they too were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. James's Jewish audience at this point would have immediately, immediately I imagine, thought of the oppressive Romans that were, that were in, they were foreigners in the land that God gave them. Right? This is their land. Why should they, the Romans, have it? Were they really supposed to love them? Really? And what about their literal neighbors? The Jewish families that they've grown up with, but now that they've professed a faith in Jesus, these are the very families who are persecuting them, that are, that are running after them, that are making them you know, divide and go all over the nations because they're not safe anymore. Are you really supposed to love people who are coming to attack you? Are you really supposed to love people who are calling you out? Do you have to love those type of people too? 
Well, James just says, yes. Yes, indeed. It's good when you obey the royal law. The answer is yes. If you, if you have to ask the question, do I really need to love them? This isn't complicated. It's hard. It's not complicated. The answer is, what's the answer? What about that person that really frustrates you? Do you really have to love them? Yeah, maybe, but maybe, maybe like me, you're sitting here trying to come up with some loophole, some sort of excuse, right? Some exception to this law, because there has to be an exception, right? I'm really good at loopholes. James doesn't actually mean that we're never supposed to show favoritism, right? Never. He finishes his thought in verse 9 by saying, but if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. (sighs) This hurts. At least for me, because this very verse has brought me to an absurd amount of confession and repentance this week. James says that playing favorites is sin. And when, when we use the word sin here at Crossbridge, we simply mean anything that we think we say we do that displeases God or any way that we think um, or behave that does not line up with the life that Jesus lived or his teachings. This is sin and it separates us from God. And James goes on to say that if we show favoritism, we are breaking the royal law and breaking one law makes us guilty of breaking the entire law because the same God gave all of these commandments. We don't get to pick and choose which ones we want to obey. That'd be great. That's just not the way this works. But it is important to remember that he's using this as an illustration for a specific group of people that he's writing to. He's writing to a a Jewish gathering, so he's using the Old Testament, and, and they understand all these rules and all these laws, and please do not think that James is trying to say to these churches and to these people, you know all those laws? You know, like, like don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, what? That's not what I'm putting on you. He's like, I'm not, he's not adding all these laws to them. He's just elevating one of them that Jesus himself pointed out numerous times and said, this one, this one you've got to pay attention to. This royal law, one of your big two. Because We'll look at it in a second, what Jesus says. If the idea of showing favoritism frustrates you right now, I understand. If thinking this is sin, then then I sin all the time. I understand. I wonder if this is why that we're always trying to come up with a reason not to. A reason or a way to justify ourselves when we do show favoritism. I'm going to assume you're more mature in your faith than I am, and and maybe I'm the only one who tries to come up with the excuses when I do this, but I've had to to confess to God so many areas of my life about where I show favoritism. And as I've looked at my justifications and excuses this week, I'll be honest, they were good. They were good. They seemed really solid. But they're just as sinful because I'm making judgments about people that I am in no position to make. I am devaluing certain people and certain groups instead of seeing them as someone created in the image of God who bears his likeness whom Jesus died for. But still, I wrestle with trying to find loopholes. I just do. 
what I love is that people did this to Jesus very often. They, they tried to find loopholes with him when it came to laws like this. And, and it happened all the time. One of the times that I love it, we read one of them in the biography of Jesus written by Matthew, which is just a couple of books back from where we are in James. But in Matthew chapter 22, we read this amazing passage where it says, but the, the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply. Jesus had just kind of shut down at one of the kind of groups of the Jewish faith with a question. And they were like, oh, let's try to get him now. It'll, it'll really make them look good. And so they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in the religious law, talking about this right here, tried to trap him with a question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now, if you pause for a second, it's easy to see that like, oh man, this is a great question. He's truly trying to gain clarity. He's not. In the words of the great Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Like, don't, don't bite. Don't do this. The teacher, what he's trying to do here is he's actually trying to get Jesus to devalue and write off some of the laws to say that these things aren't important. And if he does that, then he can really attack them saying, you don't view the laws of God. But listen, this is not his, Jesus's first show. This is not the first time he's had to deal with this. Actually, there's one of my favorite moments he deals with this. If you jump back into, or jump forward into uh, the biography of Jesus written by Luke. Luke has a great story about this in chapter 10, where again, Jesus was pointed and, and hit with this type of question. In verse 25 of chapter 10, it says this, one day an expert in the religious law, now this is a different um, situation, okay? So it's not the same. An expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength and all your mind. Now, this is royal law number one. Okay, we're gonna look at that next week in Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbor as yourself. Royal law number two, Leviticus 19. Look at Jesus's response. He says, right, you're correct. When do people get this from Jesus, right? They question him all the time, and he's like, you nailed it. You nailed it, right. And Jesus told him, do this, and you're going to live. Oh, how great. The man wanted to, what's the word here? Oh, the man wanted to justify himself and his actions. So he asked Jesus, and uh, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? We're always looking for a way out, aren't we? We're always looking for a way out. And, and instead of Jesus just giving him a straight answer, Jesus does what I love. He tells a parable, a story with a point. And the parable that he tells here is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which simply is um, a story about a man who uh, was walking from one city to the next. He got jumped, beaten, and was left naked and left for dead. And two people walked by him that should have absolutely cared for him. And they chose not to, even though they knew they should have, they walked by. And the hero of the story is basically Jesus sets him up and, and it's true. He gives him the title of the Samaritan. He is the enemy. He is the foreigner in the land that should not be there that all the listeners would have hated. And this is the one who cares for and helps the man. So then Jesus stops and says, to the, to the teacher of the law, 
And he does what every great teacher does. He kind of turns the question back on the student and says, and replied, the one who showed him what? The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, yes. Now go and do the same. The one who showed mercy. The one who could have walked by but chose not to. The one who didn't come up with justifications and excuses. Jesus affirms this man's answer and then calls him to live a life of mercy and invitation, not exceptions and exclusions. Which is exactly what James does as he closes out this section. This is what he says to this persecuted group of Jewish Jesus followers in verse 12 of James chapter 2. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. What a beautiful and unbelievably challenging reminder. The royal law was one that Jesus lived by. And through his sacrifice, he showed the ultimate demonstration of love. Because the truth is, none of us are without sin. And if anyone can stand up as a judge and say, all of you, you're not worthy, it's Jesus. But because of his mercy, we have all been forgiven. We've been forgiven. And just like God continues to remind Israel all throughout the Old Testament, remember when you were slaves in Egypt. Remember when it was horrible for you. Treat the foreigners in your land better than you were treated. You know what it's like. Remember, remember, remember. I want to remind you of the mercy of Jesus in your own life today. And I pray that it extends to those around you. And verse 13, I've been asking the Holy Spirit all week to reveal to each of us where we stand in this. Because you can say, and I can say, all that we want about our faith in Jesus. You can lift your hands, you can do all the right things. You can know every answer from the Bible. But if you show favoritism and you do not show love and mercy well, this is the law you will be judged by. This will be a far greater indicator of how mature your faith is or isn't. Because our faith is proved by love. I know that's hard, and I, I recognize that relationships get weird. Um, one of the things that we're going to be doing as a church uh, a couple weeks from now um, is a, a conference on, a, a kind of like a, a a seminar, if you will, two days on how to deal with relationships. And it's, it's something we're doing called Real, about how to understand how you've been created and how others around you have been created. And so it's so important for us to, to learn that together. And so um, in March, on March 11th and 12th, we're going to be doing this together. And uh, it's this whole uh, kind of great assessment. Um, I'll, I'll be super honest with you. It changed my marriage when I went through this and changed the way that I worked with our staff and the people around me, how I viewed people. It was, 
It was life-changing for me. And so we're going to be doing this together, inviting everyone who's a senior in high school and older to do this because it affects how you deal with siblings. It affects how you deal with parents, how you deal with your roommate, how you deal with your spouse, your par- like as an adult with parents. And it was so helpful. We're going to help walk through this together. So you can find more information about this. It'll be on Facebook. You'll get emails about it. It's, it's going to be everywhere. And um, it's just going to be amazing. It's 75 bucks a person to do it. And if you need help, we don't ever want that to stop anybody. Tell us, we will help you. We want you to do this. Because I think when I look back at my silent retreat, I'm not sure when I realized it, but I knew that there was a shift in my view of silence. I'm not, I'm not sure when it happened. But over the last four years, I just kind of kept practicing. I, I still don't really understand silence and solitude. I, I, I don't think I've got it. I think I'm figuring it out, but I just keep stepping. But honestly, I grinned, and I was like two weeks ago, hey, this area of my faith is maturing. This area isn't, but this is. I'm going to celebrate that this is great. I've taken steps. But I need you to pause for a second and ask, how do you think about, view, and treat people around you? Your family, your teams. Where, where do you show favoritism today? What kind of excuses and justifications do you tell yourself just to make yourself feel better about it? Does the way that you treat people look any different than it did last year, five years, or 10 years ago? I'm sure it does. Does it look more like Jesus or the patterns of this world? I'd like to take a minute before I invite Jeremy to come back up and lead us into communion. Because communion is bringing us back into union with Jesus and remembering what he gave up for us. But I'd love to take a minute and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us answers to some of these questions about favoritism, discrimination, And if something pops into your mind, it's an image, it's a word, it's a picture, it's anything. Would you confess that and repent and receive the grace and the mercy of Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you speak to us in this moment of silence that we may hear from you. Search us, O God, and reveal if there is any unrighteous and sinful way in our hearts of favoritism and discrimination. Jesus, I confess to you, my list feels way longer than it should. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing light to illuminate dark areas of our hearts. You don't call us to hide, but the gift, oh, the great gift of confession isn't to shame us, but to Allow us to lift our eyes back to you on the cross to receive your mercy and forgiveness. Would you forgive our sins? Forgive us when we sin and show favoritism. And Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction this week in this area? Would you allow the faith that we have in you to truly be proved by the love that we demonstrate? Would you make us, God, a community, a church where each of us loves like you love. That no matter where someone is in life, whether we agree or we disagree, it doesn't matter. We can love them 
and invite them into the process of, of taking a step towards you because it's your job to change us. We cannot change each other. So God, give us grace to be patient with each other. God, maybe, maybe would you give us the grace to forgive our country from doing this when, God, it's so ugly in our country with the amount of favoritism, racism, sexism. How dare us judge our country when we as Christians do the same thing? Would you start with our hearts first that we would lead through the life that we live, not just what we say? Jesus, thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live this week in a way that we could not without him. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.